0: Unity. So we have this temptation to reduce unity to some form of uniformity. That we all look the same and talk the same and act the same and think the same and and do the same things and are concerned about the same things. And therefore, that is unity, external unity. Or there's the temptation to repackage this unity as everyone just getting along with each other relationally, that somehow we find a, a way to just make things click in the body, and we all work together relationally, really having no true substance of unity, just trying to find a way to get along. And, and this is the, the aim, the target, uh, or the method, I should say, for the target of the ecumenical movement in which we try to lower all the theological walls of distinction between different church groups, and we lower them so low to their lowest common denominator that we can hold hands across different church groups, and call this unity. So we minimize truth for the sake of what we deem to be oneness or unity. And, and so we have to give up basic theological truths like the deity of Christ and the inerrancy and sufficiency of the scriptures and the nature of salvation. And so there's groups that have differing views on that that want to hold hands across denominational boundaries and call it unity. This theological reductionism is the only path to that kind of unity in the broad spectrum of those who call themselves Christians. I ask you, is that what Jesus is praying for here in John 17? Is that his goal in asking the Father to make us one in the church? There's also the unity in the local church, not thinking ecumenically outside of our church, but just within the local church. It's easy to think of unity in in that we have no disagreements No challenges. We have no no difficulty with each other. That we just find a way to to get along with each other and be at peace with each other relationally. We we keep things kind of under the rug. We're we're nice in person. We, We look the part. Underlying, there might be all kinds of issues, but we have relational peace. Is that what Jesus prays for? I showed you last week that What Jesus prays for and what he models in his relationship with the Father is much greater and much deeper than that. It's it's much more glorious than that kind of unity. I showed you just by sticking to John 17 and how Jesus prays to the Father, that he and the Father were one in purpose and in, in plan, in proclamation, in perfection, perfection of character and nature, and in perfect love. And so that's what the the oneness that we have in Christ that Jesus prays will come to reality in the body, that we'd be one in all of those ways, purpose, plan, proclamation, perfection as we're grown into the character of Christ and the love of God flowing through us to one another. What I want to do this morning is finish that sermon from last Sunday and show you the last two points of Jesus' prayer for the church I showed you the nature of that unity Last week. I want to show you this morning the result of this unity. And that's at the end of verses 21 and 23. Jesus asks the Father to make them one. And he says, So that. That's a, a purpose statement. Here's the result of why he's praying for their oneness so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the result of this unity is. A uh, evangelistic result, right? It's an outward-focused result, one in which makes us better witnesses for our Lord in the world. This internal oneness exemplifies and validates the message of the gospel, which sits at the center of the church. In Romans 1, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek there's no greater divide in in human experience than that of of ethnic divide between Jew and Gentile correct every other divide every other difficulty and difference is, is minimal in comparison to the divide between Jew and Gentile and in the gospel there is a a oneness and a unity a power that that goes far beyond and supersedes culture and ethnicity and Skin color and geography and affinity and political views and social class and financial realities, whatever other distinction we tend to make in the human race, the gospel triumphs over them all. Ephesians 2 makes that very clear. Paul tells us that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down in Christ. He's talking about the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. He says, Those who were far off from Christ have now been brought near to him by his blood, because he himself is our peace. He goes on to say that he, Jesus, has made both Jew and Gentile one. That's a scandalous thought in the Roman context. Jew and Gentile are made one by the breaking down of the divisions of hostility through the tearing apart of his own flesh. So now two are made one, reconciled to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The murder of Jesus produced the murder of the hostility in the human race provided through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the glorious work of, of God's sovereign grace, by which he calls and chooses some out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people group and, and adds them to one people, his church. And this new body, this new entity, are one with Christ and One with the Father, and therefore they're one with one another, right? So think of your New Testament. Think of Romans 12, in which it tells you that you are so one with Christ that you're members one of another. Like you're members of your body. They're individual parts of your body, but they're part of your body as a whole. All the parts, members of one another. Like Jesus says in John 10, we're all sheep. Of the same fold, listening to the voice of our good shepherd. That doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter how much melatonin you have in your skin. It doesn't matter what social class you are in in this society or in any other. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank. It doesn't matter how you serve in the church. This glorious reality is: Jesus is our good shepherd. We his sheep. First Peter two says we're stones that are built together, put in place by the Lord. And the chief cornerstone of that building is Jesus Himself. All things in the the building of the the church are in line with Christ. And we're individually stones in that building. Ephesians 5 says that we're, we're part of the bride. We together as one body are the one bride of our glorious husband, Jesus Himself. John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He is the the entity and the source of our power and our life. We are all branches connected to the one vine. And so this real and true oneness is to be evidenced in the relationships and the ministry of the church. When she is eagerly maintaining this oneness, when she's pursuing unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. She is a healthy body. She is a sound building. She is a dutiful wife. She is a branch producing much fruit. And Jesus prays for that so that we would be effective with the gospel in the world. Jesus prays about that in two ways. Notice that. He prays about that, that it would validate the heavenly origin of the gospel we proclaim. He prays in verse 21, help them to be one so that the world may know or believe that you have sent me. It's a very familiar formula in John's gospel. It's one that Jesus says often. He's concerned for the world to know that he has come into the world by the commissioning of the Father. In other words, he didn't come as a fly-by-night Messiah to draw a crowd and, and raise a ruckus for a short time and, and rally the troops to attack Rome. No, he's actually the real and actual Savior of the world sent from the Father. And Jesus prays for the church to be one so that the world will know that the Jesus we proclaim is the one sent from heaven. There's a lot of gospels in the world, right? A lot of offers of good news that our our culture peddles to you day in and day out. The gospel of hedonism tells you that your life and joy and peace are found in whatever satisfies and pleases you, whatever is, is pleasurable to you. That's the gospel of hedonism. So eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. Enjoy it while you have it. The gospel of materialism tells you that, that good life, the, the abundance of life is found in the possession of your things, exactly contrary to what Jesus said, by the way, but that life is found in the abundance of your things. So Get as much as you can and enjoy it as long as you can in this life. The gospel of queer theory, which is massively important in our culture today, even dominates a whole month in our calendar. Almost every retailer that you enter into has some display bowing to the God of queer theory. Queer theory tells you that your true life is found in sexual liberty. In, in doing and being whatever you want. That, that actually life is found in absolute chaos. The shirking off of all of God's design and all of God's plan in that category of life. That is where happiness is found. That's the gospel of queer theory. Any number of other gospels we could go through, they all put before you some way to know life and joy and peace. But we have the true and real gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a a better gospel that triumphs over all of those other gospels. And, And one of the validating realities to our gospel to show that it is better is that when it is effective, when it is believed, when the power of the gospel comes upon a heart, that soul is taken from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. And is joined with other souls in the kingdom of light. And they now become one as Christ's church. And they being one magnify the gospel they proclaim. They become the the validating evidence that this Jesus we're telling you about. Actually is from heaven. Because only heaven could do what you see here. Only heaven could bring together this group of people, and join them in one body with all of our differences and all our uniquenesses, and make us united in the body of Christ. Only the gospel could do that. Only God could do that. And so our oneness becomes a proclaimer, a a validation of the gospel we preach. There's a second way in which our unity validates this gospel at the end of verse 23, Jesus prays that we would be one like Father and Son are one so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son and that they would know that the Father loved the disciples just as he has loved the Son. In other words, our unity in the body is evidence of the love which God has for us. So if we are loving one another, we're evidencing that we have been loved by God. I think there's a Bible verse that says that. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. You don't love God because you're such a wonderful, loving person and you're so great. You wouldn't know to love God. You don't don't love each other because you just are so full of love inside of you and you're such a loving, wonderful person. Teddy bear level love in you. That's not what's going on here. You love Christ's church because you've been loved by God. And this love that you know in God should pour out of you to the church. John says that in 1 John 3.16, the other popular John 3.16 text. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This love of God is the oil which keeps the engine of the church greased and running well. Being loved by God, we now turn in love for one another, building up and maintaining this unity which is is ours in Christ. Expressing that unity, that love we all know and share, we now show to one another. And it validates the gospel we preach for what would be a one-word description of the gospel other than love. For God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There are many things happening in the work of Jesus and displaying his holiness and his grace and his mercy, but this is primary evidence of his love. So why would we expect the unbeliever that you're witnessing to to believe your gospel of love if they do not see evidences of that love in your life and in the people you say have been changed by the gospel you preach to them? You see, Jesus is evidencing to you or maybe pulling back the curtains a little bit to our understanding to see that that God intends for evangelism in the world to be rooted in the local church. The local church is the the proof in the pudding of the gospel proclamation in the world. The the love of the church, the unity of the church is a, a beautiful flower that bursts forth from the powerful seed of the gospel. In a dark and dingy and stormy world, that flower stands strong and bright and beautiful, magnifying the seed that created it and the one who planted the seed, the God of heaven. The result of this is that the world may know the gospel we preach is really the power of God unto salvation. Recently reading a testimony of a young man who was raised in Southeast Asia and then Being raised in that land was raised Roman Catholic as part of his culture, had been in many beautiful church buildings, Roman Catholic church buildings in that part of the world, had seen and experienced many liturgical church services in that place. In his later teens, he emigrated to the U.S., lived with some family members, and started some training in schooling, and as he did that, they invited him to come with them to their church, which was an evangelical, Bible-preaching, gospel-saturated church as he tells the story in his testimony, they pulled up in the parking lot to the building and he looked at it and said, we're not at church. This isn't a church. It looks like a warehouse. What are we doing? It was so pathetic in comparison to the cathedral-like structures he had seen in his background. So he went in unimpressed, unlikely to buy in or believe what they were peddling there because of the nature of the building. As he tells the story, as he got to know the church family and was around them for several weeks, he began to see the warmth of of love they had for one another, the warmth of their fellowship, which crossed cultural boundaries and and ethnic backgrounds. Their kindness to him and to one another drew him in, That, that softened the soil of his heart and readied him to receive the seed of the gospel by the unity he saw in that church and it validated the message of the gospel. It it whet his spiritual appetite to seek out what could make these people like this, because I've never experienced anything like it before. See, beloved, that's the power of the gospel in and through us. This is why Jesus prays for our oneness, that all the world may know the gospel we preach is from heaven, not made by human hands. Maybe it'd be helpful to think in opposite terms. Certainly you have been a part of or know of a church that is not walking in this unity, is not experiencing this oneness with each other. Think of a church which has lost its focus, which is marked by unhealthy divisions driven by fleshly concerns. Think of a a church where folks are aligned into groups based upon leaders or pet projects or theological camps and agendas. Think of a church where sin has entered in and pride is the air everyone breathes. Think of a church being torn apart by theological controversy. Think of a church where toxic relationships abound, where people are are nice enough in person, but they're backbiting and gossiping when they're not together. I ask you, is such a church like that effective in their witness for the Lord? Are they able to be a bright light in a dark world? Are unbelievers drawn to that kind of church family? Does that type of church abound in gospel fruitfulness? And you know, of course, it does not. You and I have been around enough churches struggling with those kinds of issues to know that that reality is a blight to the testimony of Christ. Turning inward, focusing on our problems, trying to deal with the issues, struggling as a body and weak in our witness. One of the greatest things you can do for the sake of the gospel in Newton, Kansas is to give yourself heart and soul to maintaining the unity of the body as you love one another well, as you live in light of the truths of the gospel. The church which is united in Christ is a powerful evangelistic tool. Evangelism is personal and Needs to be proclaimed. You can't just live the gospel and hope people figure it out. You have to say and speak the gospel. The gospel is words, it needs to be proclaimed. You have personal accountability for those in your life who don't know Jesus. You need to tell them of this Jesus and call them to believe in him. But you're also being evangelistic when you love your brother or sister who are hurting. You're also being evangelistic when you know of a need and you give of yourself to meet that need. You're also being evangelistic when you know there's a problem between you and a brother or a sister and you determine to help fix it out of love and a desire for the unity of the body because the unity of the body, the oneness of the body of Christ is the validation of the gospel we preach. And the flip side of that coin is if you are going to destroy the unity of the body of Christ, if you're going to hold on to pet sins, if you're going to elevate minor theological concerns and have those predominate your view of the body, if you're going to grow in grumbling and murmuring and complaining about the body of Christ, if you're going to let sin go unchecked and be disruptive to the unity of the body, you must know you're not just ruining the unity of the body. That is serious enough. You are endangering the power of the witness of the body of Christ speaking this last week on the phone with a brother pastor. As he expressed to me the concerns he was facing, he was talking about some ministry ideas that they had, and one of the things they're working through is just how, how they recover a good name as a church in their community. The pastor before him had been caught in a scandalous, public, sinful reality. And now, some 10 years later, when their church name gets named in the community, that that is still what is first brought up in the conversation. I say that to say, believers, this is of utmost importance to you. There's an evangelistic element to your holiness and your oneness, your sanctification and your unity in Christ. It's validation of the gospel we preach. No wonder then Jesus prays for that for his church, that we would be one so as to have gospel reality put on display. Then I want to show you the fullness of this unity, verses 24 through 26 in John 17. Jesus prays for them that they would be able to be with him where he is so that they may behold, not just see, glimpse at, even perceive with their eyes, but behold, gaze at, take in, study, know it in its fullness. He longs for them to be with him and behold his glory. This is a prayer for the finality of the salvation of the church. Jesus has already told them back in chapter 14 that I'm leaving you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But don't worry, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm gonna return and bring you with me so that you can be with me where I am, right? This is prayer form of that promise, John fourteen two. now prayed by Jesus to the Father. Asking the Father to do the thing that they have determined before the foundation of the world to do and that is to bring all of his sons to glory. The son is praying in line with the foreordained will of God determined in eternity past and in the present compelling Jesus to pray. There's a lesson for you there. I'm gonna actually come back to that next week. I think we need to come back to John 17 and learn lessons on prayer from Jesus. One of those is, and I'll, I'll you know, just give you a little commercial. One of those is Jesus knew the will of God, had agreed to, he is the part of the Godhead, one of the members of the Trinity, agreed to leave heaven to accomplish that will and yet still prays that that will would be accomplished. He prays for our unity leading to our glorification, the finality of our salvation. This is the end of the matter for Jesus' high priestly prayer. Earlier in the chapter, he prayed for himself. Verse 5, he prayed and asked the Father, glorify me and give me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Verse Verses 6 through 15, he prayed for his disciples. He prayed for God to preserve them in the Lord's name, to keep them from the evil one because they were still going to be in the world but not of the world. Verses 17 and 19, he prayed for his disciples to be sanctified with the truth because God's word is truth and set them apart to service just like Jesus was set apart to serve them. And now he prays for the unity of the church. Make them one as you, Father, and I are one, Jesus prayed. And now he prays for their glorification. This is the the culmination of all of those things. This is the, the glory of God made known in all of eternity, beheld by all, saved by his grace. He ties a bow on all of these prayers and prays for them to come to this glorious conclusion. Jesus desires for us to be with him for all of eternity. Just stop and think for a moment with me about that. It makes perfect sense for us to want to be with God for all of eternity. And if you don't want to be with God for all of eternity, you do not know God. That's one of the gospel checks that needs to be on your soul. If you don't want to know God and be with God, you ought to question, do I actually know the God of heaven? Because knowing the God of heaven by His grace should compel you to want to know Him. more. That's understandable. What is mind-blowing is that our Savior wants us to be with Him for all of eternity. I'm not sure I want to be with myself for all of eternity. Jesus wants us to be with him for all of eternity. What a great Savior we have. He wants us to be with him so that we can see his glory. This is the glory which the Father has given him. He says in verse 22, he gave it to him and then the Son gave it to the church. This is the inherent majesty, the transcendent glory of God, the God over all things, the one who's enthroned above creation. This is the glory Jesus spoke of in verse 5 when he, he prayed for the glory that he had before the foundation of the world to be returned to him. This is the glory of his self-revelation. He came and gave it to the church. Well, what did he give to the church? He gave to the church the knowledge of the real and true God whom no one has seen, John 1.18. The word came into the world to make God known. So we see the glory of God and the revelation of God through the Son of God. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The essence of our faith is to see and behold the glory of God in the revelation he has given us of himself. This is the pursuit that you should have as you open your copy of the Scriptures on any part of any given day. It is to see more of the glory of the God who gave you this revelation of Himself. And as you gaze upon that glory, you're being transformed into one degree of glory to another. Never perfectly, never seeing Him completely, never transformed fully into that glory. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then... Face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We don't yet have the fullness of that glory revealed. We see it dimly as in a glass. But soon, one day, we will be with Jesus where He is, and we will see Him face to face, beholding all of His glory. 1 John 3 and verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So when he prays for our glorification, for us to be brought to be with him, he's praying for us to be changed, to be fully sanctified. Fully made in his image. Purified and perfected by his grace. As we see him in all of his glory. This is also the glory, by the way, which is the culmination of, of Jesus' work as the Son sent into the world. So because he finished his work, he is crowned with glory and honor, right? Scriptures tells us again and again and again. You need only think of Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Humbled himself. Took upon himself the form of a servant. Became obedient even to the point of death. Verse 9. That at this name, every knee should bow. He's been given a name which is above every name. That at this name, every knee should bow. Things in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is supreme glory, right? Right? That's a manifestation of all of the glory that you could muster in all of creation, and it's all lavished upon one man, the Lord Jesus, because he humbled himself. He was obedient, and he accomplished our redemption. This is why we have the the heavens opened and parted for us in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. We see a glimpse of the glory of God on display in that place, and The moment of crisis when they can't find someone to open the scroll which will reveal what God's going to do next in the world, particularly in judging the world. There's loud sobs in heaven and then the Lamb appears. The one who has conquered through death, burial, and resurrection and ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. He appears, the spotless Lamb though slain. And the cry of heaven rings out. Worthy is he. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And Revelation says the whole creation, all creatures and all of creation, reply to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. The culmination of Christ's glory is the power of the, the majesty of Jesus fleshed out in all of eternity. And what he prays for is that we will be brought to be with him so we can see that. We've seen him in his shame. With the eyes of faith, we've seen our Lord mocked. We've seen our Lord accused of, falsely of blasphemy and lies. We've seen our Lord beaten We've seen our Lord have his beard plucked out. We've seen our Lord taken to within an inch of of death by a cat of nine tails. We've seen our Lord stumble under the weight of a wood cross as he is on the verge of death. We've seen our Lord nailed to a Roman execution stake and raised up in mockery and shame, naked and betrayed in front of all. Struggling for every breath. Mocked by every bystander and passerby. We've seen the world reject our Jesus. And now he prays. Lord, bring them. These who know you and know me. Know that you have sent me. Bring them so they can see me in my glory. 1987, the winner of Wimbledon Went against all protocol. After you win Wimbledon, you're supposed to dutifully wait for a member of the royal family to bring you the trophy. All the pomp and circumstance of royalty in and, and England was on display in center court Wimbledon. This man, an Australian, not that he didn't have respect for the crown, it's just that he wanted something else more in that moment. Going against all protocol after he had won Wimbledon, he jumped the, the barrier between him and the fans and he ran up and embraced his father and all the team of people that were around and rejoiced with them in the moment in the glory of winning the hardest tennis tournament in the world. They came back down and they gave him the trophy and they were interviewing him afterwards. They asked him, what, why did you make a member of the royal family wait? Don't you know what you did? He said, listen, this is what it was all about. My family was with me in all of the hard things. I wanted them to be with me in the joy of the moment. In a similar way, this is what Jesus is praying for us. We know that shame. We bear that reproach with him as followers of the Son. And he is calling us to be glorified with him so we can behold him in all of his triumphant glory. Of all the wonders of heaven, preeminent among them will be the display of the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he prays for our oneness, leading to our glorification, that we may see him in all his glory. Beloved, may we pray similarly. May we pursue the unity of the body, keeping our eyes fixed on that moment when we're brought to be with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the power of your word, the ministry of your spirit to teach us. We ask that you would preserve us, sanctify us, and unify us so that one day you would glorify us. Not with a glory our own, but a glory shared from you with us as you bring us into your presence and change us to be like you. So Father, we ask that you would accomplish this work for the honor of your own name in this church, in Jesus' name. Amen.